All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to begin, and there is some music playing that you may be able to hear a little bit, see if you can recognize what it is. I'll turn it up a little. So what it is, is a Bach choral prelude uh, that you would probably recognize if you were in church and it was Advent season, and the German name of it is Wacket Alf, um, and we usually know it as Sleeper's Wake, and so it's doubly appropriate for this class because of our theme verse that has to do with Sleeper's Waking. But if you carefully read the chapter this week, you would notice that there was a reference to Bach chorales in the chapter of all things. So uh, with that, uh, let me start us with a word of prayer, and we will move on into our class for this evening. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the insights from your word and about your kingdom that it contains. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we might learn uh, about your kingdom, that we would learn from your word as well, and that as Lewis spends the story to try to express the truth that the Gospels teach, that we would have ears to hear. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's start, as usual, by saying our verse together. For at one time... Oh, whoops. Look at that. When you press the right button, it comes back. Here we go. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And you will see as we go through this chapter tonight that so many different elements of that passage 
from Ephesians are on display. So just a word of welcome to people that are new, whether in person or on our live stream. We're delighted to have you with us. If you are new, uh, just a word about how to approach this class. Uh, this is a book that has long and sometimes complicated chapters, and uh, don't let that scare you away. You can be on the beach in this class, which means you just listen a little bit, you don't read anything, you pick up what you can, and uh, maybe watching TV or something like that. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. We're glad to have you. Or you can snorkel where you go deep on the things that are of interest to you, uh, but not on the other parts. Or you can scuba dive, which means you go through all the resources that are in the weekly email. And speaking of the weekly email, if you are new, uh, please uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email and we'll get you added uh, to the list so that you get those summaries and resources each week. And I do want to encourage you, if you are reading along, to read at least some sections of this book out loud. Those of you that are reading along who are snorkeling or scuba diving will know that we finally, finally got to a chapter that has some light in it this week. And that section is some of Lewis's most gorgeous writing in this book, and it really is worth reading out loud, even if you've already read that chapter. So, uh, a little bit of review. Remember, we're still looking for themes from the abolition of man, which are showing up all over the place in this book. Uh, the first one is this idea of objective value versus subjectivism. Uh, the idea that there are things that are right and true and good and beautiful, and it's not just a matter of opinion. Secondly, that there is a natural law, that there's something that presses on us that is part of the way that God has made creation, um, where there is a right and a wrong, there's a good and there's an evil. And then this idea of the abolition of man, that when we begin to talk about that we don't need God and we can control nature, that really is a euphemism for some men to use nature and whatever science they can come up with as a means to control other people. So the three books in this trilogy, which I highly recommend if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, read the other ones as well. They're so good. Uh, Out of the Silent Planet is the Cambridge professor who is kidnapped and taken to Mars to be a human sacrifice, but fortunately he escapes. Paralandra, the story of creation, um, Eden, Adam and Eve, without the fall, taking place on Venus. And then that hideous strength where we've got academia and turmoil, we've got some Arthurian legend, we've got some spiritual warfare and some vastly overreaching um, bureaucracy um, taking people's liberties and a um, counterbalance that is going on from a spiritual community. The source of the title, um, this is so important to keep coming back to, uh, Lewis has in mind the Tower of Babel all through this book. That's always a good image to keep in the front of your mind. And the Tower of Babel is the image of man's pride, thinking that man in his own strength without God thinks he can do a better job than God did. And that pervades all of the thinking that you see from the nice in this book. And that poem about the Tower of the Babel and that great line, the shadow of that hideous strength 
six mile and more it is of length. And then again, the reminder from Lewis in the preface that this is a story about devilry, that Lewis is taking very seriously that there is a devil, that there are forces of evil, and that they are active out in the world. So, quick review of chapters. Remember, we started off with Jane Studdock and her frustrations um, trying to be a modern woman and be the equal of her husband or maybe his superior in career and feeling very frustrated and at the same time having these dreams that she feels like she needs to be cured of that are like nightmares. Meanwhile, her husband is working his way into the inner circle of this college. He's very young, but he's been taken up by some important people there, so he's very full of himself. Uh, and they are in that college proposing to sell Bragdon Wood and Merlin's Well, one of the most ancient and beautiful sites in all of Britain, and they're going to sell it to the NICE, the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and then the Dumbles are this couple that we see early on um, who are people that Jane has a great affection for um, with Dr. Dumble having been her professor in college. The second chapter, we get an insider view of an academic dinner um, where Mark is brought up to the very inner circle of the college. Um, as a man in his 20s, he thinks he's got it made and he's outpaced all of the other people his same age and he thinks he is so cool. And then he is sitting there reflecting on how cool he is while they start talking about, oh, well, what we're going to be about is reconditioning the human race, taking over, controlling and subduing nature, and exerting control over interplanetary wars. And he just says, pass the salt. He doesn't really care. He's just so excited to be in that inner ring, it doesn't matter to him what they're doing. Meanwhile, Jane is at home and very upset, and when he finally comes home, she has kind of a little breakdown and sobs, and the next morning she wakes up and is horrified that she showed any weakness or vulnerability because that was very womanish and that's bad. And so she's determined to give Mark the cold shoulder. And then there's this whole beautiful journey that we spent time unpacking of Mark and the sports car running over people's dogs and everything else on the way to the nice headquarters, and Jane on the slow train going through the bucolic beauty of the English countryside with all of these symbols of Christianity heading to the commu community of St. Anne's. Then we see Mark going to the NICE headquarters at the blood transfusion plant and trying to do what seems so reasonable, find out in a job interview whether he's being offered a job or not, and what the job is, if so, and who he's working for and what the responsibilities are. But all he can get is doublespeak, all of these words strung together that don't mean anything at all. Meanwhile, Jane goes up to St. Anne's um, to talk about her dreams and visions, and they tell her that these dreams are very important and that other people are going to be trying to find her and that she has to make a choice about whether to use her dreams for good or evil. Well, she doesn't like that at all because she thinks of herself as having agency. She is a free, independent woman, 
and nobody's going to use her by God, and she's having nothing to do with any of it, and she walks out in a huff. Meanwhile, Mark meets Fairy Hardcastle, the kind of frightening um, female head of the secret police of the nice, which of course begs the question, why would a nice organization like the nice need a secret police force? Then Jane, on her way back, just works herself into a swivet about how much she's had to give up in her life and really blames all of her unhappiness on Mark and the fact that she's married, and if she wasn't married, she would have been much better off, and all these sacrifices are not worth it. So then, in the next chapter, Liquidation of Anachronisms, the nice shows up in Edgestow, this beautiful university town, with bulldozers and all this other equipment outside all of these little thatched roof quaint cottages by the river, and tells the people that have lived there for decades, you've got eight hours to get out. And if the people are not out, the bulldozer just starts hitting the wall until the house falls down. So people are horrified. There are people in the streets. And the beauty of the town is being ruined. Um, Bill Hingist, a scientist at the NICE, is murdered. Um, Mark meets with the mad parson um, at the NICE, who is somebody that is like a liberation theologian on cocaine or something. Um, he has some very, very, very strange views, and he has assigned a propaganda project on destroying this beautiful, beautiful village. And when Mark goes to the village, he's just struck by how beautiful it is, but he still manages to maintain cognitive dissonance and write the propaganda anyway. And so, as the chapter closes, the nice workmen um, have a riot outside the fellows room where the faculty is all meeting at Bracton College, and this ancient and beautiful window that's been there since the 17th century is shattered as they hear machine gun fire outside. Then chapter five, elasticity, Mark has had it. He's decided he's gonna have a showdown with the director of the nice, and he's gonna go in there and he's gonna, by God, find out if he has a job or not. And so he goes crashing in there, and it is totally a failure. And Mark determines that he's probably lost his job at Bracton College, he's lost his job at the NICE, and it is really, really unfortunate. Meanwhile, the fairy is waiting for Mark when he comes out of this unfortunate meeting and offers him a job writing propaganda to rehabilitate the image of this awful criminal, Alcasan who was uh, a, someone who murdered his own wife. And Mark doesn't seem to mind at all. He starts working on that, and uh, it becomes very clear that the way they are going to work at the NICE is through threats and coercion. Meanwhile, Jane has a lovely picnic with the Denistons and discovers that they have moved to St. Anne's, this place where she went about her dreams, and she learns that they're led by this man with the name Mr. Fisher King, who is a man who is the leader but has a wounded heel. So there should be all sorts of bells going off when you hear this, because Fisher King is the guy in Arthurian legend who guards the Holy Grail. Um, he is also an image of Christ. The King Fisher is also an image of Christ. The wounded heel 
goes back to the story in Genesis about Jesus that we hear in lessons and carols every year. So that should be making us think about all of this. They urge Jane to join their community, um, but she is just too determined to guard her independence. So then chapter 6, the fog. The chapter opens, there's fog everywhere. It's covering up all the horrible work of the nice. And Mark has another disastrous meeting about whether he has a job or not. And he goes into the deputy director's office, and the deputy director just blows him out of the water and says how terrible he is, and he causes strife and conflict everywhere he goes, and they could certainly never have anyone like that working at the nice. And so he finally says, well, perhaps I could give you a probationary appointment at one-third the usual stipend. And Mark, at this point, is groveling, and so he takes this ridiculous job uh, because he thinks it's better than nothing. Meanwhile, after he does that, he gets invited into the library. Oh, wow! Wouldn't all of you be so excited to be invited to come sit in a library with a couple of other people for two hours? But for Mark, that is the badge of admission to this inner ring at the nice. And he is so excited that he forgets that the person invited him had just blown him out of the water two days before and told him to go to hell. But he gets over all of that because he's been invited into the library. So uh, they begin talking about the fact that the nice is putting on some riots. And Mark at first is like, what? And they said, oh, yes, yes, we're instigating the riots, and we want you to go ahead and write the newspaper articles about them before they happen. And he is just appalled, and they think it's hilarious that he's shocked by this, which is a good measure of how much evil is going on there. And so eventually he sort of laughs it off, and he's like, oh, of course, I'll do that. I'll throw away all my moral principles. No big deal. And he learns that part of the reason they're trying to have these riots is they want to have unrest in the country so that they can get emergency powers that will allow them to suppress individual liberties. It's amazing how some of this is happening in parallel time right now. Um, so anyway, Jane has been having this dream about this man with a pince-nez. And a pince-nez, in case you don't know, is those little spectacles that sit on the bridge of your nose. And this guy's been in her dreams watching her while she sleeps, which is really creepy. And so, you remember when she gets stressed, what does she do? She goes shopping. That's her usual method. So she's gone to the village, and then she sees this guy that she's seen in her dreams with the pince-nez, and she is very, very freaked out. And she just finds him utterly revolting and has this visceral sense of evil. He gets in a car with the seal of the nice on it, and she immediately runs to St. Anne's on the hill uh, without even thinking about it. So that brings us to chapter 7, uh, The Pendragon. The Pendragon is another Arthurian title. We're not going to go too much into the King Arthur parts tonight. We're going to hit that in a later lesson. But what happens in this chapter is that Jane gets to St. Anne's, and she is welcomed into the house, and 
she sees that the Denistons are there, Ivy Maggs, who used to be her housekeeper, and Grace Ironwood. And so they invite her in to talk about this dream she's had about this awakening corpse that she had to touch. The only way she could like feel her way out was to touch this robe of this awakening corpse. And these people are deeply, deeply interested in her dream. Jane is very upset that Ivy Maggs is in there because she thinks this housekeeper is NOCD, not our class, darling. And uh, thinks that the housekeeper ought to be excused. And uh, Camilla Deniston sets her straight and says, we are all equal here at St. Anne's. So that is uh, a bit of a shock to Jane, but she keeps going. And uh, they're deeply interested in this dream and ask Jane if she's ready to meet the director. And she says, yes. And they explain a little bit about the director and that he might look young, but he isn't really, that he's done amazing things and he's traveled where no one else has ever gone and that he is often in great pain. And Jane is thinking, why are they telling me all of this? And so she goes into the director's room and as Lewis puts it, her world was unmade. And she is just overwhelmed as she walks through this door into the presence of this man the beauty and the holiness of the man and his surroundings just completely destroy everything that she has ever thought or felt before. And so she sees in front of her lying on the sofa in sort of a throne room, this man who looks like a 20-year-old golden boy, but has a full beard and is very, very strong. One of his feet has a bandage and she sees the pain going in and out of his face. His voice is described as being heavy with sunlight and gold. And he speaks to her, and she is just awed by the fact that he has spoken to her. And he wants Jane to join them, but the problem is that Mark works at the nice, and he says, you can't be part of our company if your husband is working for the nice, which is essentially our enemy. And so, Jane says, well, it doesn't matter what he does. I'm a free agent. Forget him. I just want to stay here. And the director says, no, no, we have a high view of marriage in this place, and um, you would need to be on the same page. Perhaps you could ask him to leave the nice, because if you want to save him, he's got to get out of there. And she sort of isn't really sure whether she wants to save him. And she tells the director how unhappy she is, and that Mark has lost her love, and they go through a whole discussion about that. And then when she leaves the director, Lewis says that Jane is like four different women. The first, just receptive to what the director said. The second, deeply resistant. The third, looking at the outlook presented by the director and agreeing with it. And the fourth, which is the strongest of all, just overwhelmed of being in a state of absolute, pure, joy after meeting the director. So she's in this state of joy. She decides to go home. She gets on the train, and she gets out of the train, and she walks right into the middle of a riot. And the riot is terrible. She's um, pursued by all sorts of violent people, and she is eventually arrested by the nice police and taken to Fairy Hardcastle. And there's this very creepy torture scene, don't read this part out loud to yourself, it will give you nightmares, 
a very creepy, sadistic torture scene where they burn her with cigarettes trying to get her to say where she's been. And Jane refuses um, to say anything about St. Anne's. And then some of the rioters crash into the police station and Jane is able to break away. Um, her clothes are torn, she's beaten up, and this kindly couple um, takes her into their automobile and says, don't you want us to take you home? And she says, yes, please take me home, take me to St. Anne's. So rather than going to her actual home, something has shifted in her where she sees St. Anne's as her home, and so they take her there. So there are a lot of amazing passages in here um, tonight, and one of the things that I want you to think about is the contrast between all of what we've seen about the nice and how it's described and how Bracton College is described and then how this encounter with the director is described because it's completely different. So, uh, first little passage. A few minutes later, Jane found herself once more in Grace Arnwood's room. Miss Arnwood and the Denisons all sat facing her so that she felt as if she were the candidate in a viva voce examination. And when Ivy Maggs brought in the tea, she did not go away again, but sat down as if she also were one of the examiners. Now, said Camilla, her eyes and nostrils widened with a sort of fresh mental hunger. It was too concentrated to be called excitement. Jane glanced around the room. You need not mind Ivy, young lady, said Miss Arnwood. She is one of our company. And this idea, the more we see about St. Anne's, is the idea the company is one body. Does that sound familiar? Then, Jane told them about the dream of the corpse, if it was a corpse, and the dark place, and how she had met the bearded man, the one with the pince-nez, that morning in Market Street, and at once she was aware of having created intense interest. Fancy, said Ivy Maggs. So we were right about Bragdon Wood, said Camilla. It really is Belberry, said her husband. But in that case, where does Alcassan come in? Excuse me, said Miss Ironwood in her level voice, and the others became instantly silent. We must not discuss the matter here. Mrs. Studdock has not yet joined us. So apparently, membership in this company actually means something. It's not just a collection of people. You have to become a member. So then this passage as they go to meet the director. They passed out into the plain narrow passage and thence up shallow steps into a large entrance hall whence a fine Georgian staircase led to the upper floors. The house, larger than Jane had at first supposed, was warm and very silent, and after so many days spent in fog, the autumn sunlight, falling on soft carpets and on walls, seemed to her bright and golden. On the first floor, but raised above it by six steps, they found a little square place with white pillars, where Camilla, quiet and alert, was waiting for them. There was a door behind her. He will see her, she said to Miss Ironwood, getting up. Is he in much pain this morning? It is not continuous. It's one of his good days. As Miss Ironwood raised her hand to knock on the door, Jane thought to herself, be careful. Don't get let in for anything. All these long passages and low voices will make a fool of you if you don't look out. You'll become another of this man's female adorers. Next moment, she found herself going in. It was light. It seemed all windows, 
and it was warm. A fire blazed on the hearth, and blue was the prevailing color. Before her eyes had taken it in, she was annoyed and in a way ashamed to see that Miss Ironwood was curtsying. This is the young lady, sir, said Miss Ironwood. Jane looked, and instantly her world was unmade. On a sofa before her, with one foot bandaged as if he had a wound, lay what appeared to be a boy, 20 years old. On one of the long window sills, a tame jackdaw was walking up and down. The light of the fire with its weak reflection and the light of the sun with its stronger reflection contended on the ceiling. But all the light in the room seemed to run toward the gold hair and the gold beard of the wounded man. Of course he was not a boy. How could she have thought so? The fresh skin on his forehead and cheeks and above all on his hands had suggested the idea. But no boy could have so full a beard and no boy could be so strong. She had expected to see an invalid. Now it was manifest that the grip of those hands would be inescapable, and imagination suggested that the arms and shoulders could support the whole house. Miss Ironwood at her side struck her as a little old woman, shriveled and pale, a thing you could have blown away. The sofa was placed on a kind of dais, divided from the rest of the room by a step. She had an impression of masked hangings of blue, Later she saw it was only a screen behind the man, so that the effect was that of a throne room. She would have called it silly if instead of seeing it she'd been told it by another. Through the window she saw no trees, nor hills, nor shapes of other houses, only the level floor of mist, as if this man and she were perched in a blue tower overlooking the world. Pain came and went in his face, sudden jabs of sickening and burning pain. But as lightning goes through the darkness and the darkness closes up again and shows no trace, so the tranquility of his countenance swallowed up each shock of torture. How could she have thought him young or old either? It came over her with the sensation of quick fear that this face was of no age at all. She had disliked bearded faces except for old men with white hair, but that was because she had long since forgotten the imagined Arthur of her childhood and the imagined Solomon too. Solomon, for the first time in many years, the bright solar blend of king and lover and magician which hangs about that name stole back upon her mind. For the first time in all those years, she tasted the word king itself with all the linked associations of battle, marriage, priesthood, mercy, and power. At that moment, as her eyes first rested on his face, Jane forgot who she was and where, and her faint grudge against Mark, sorry, her faint grudge against Grace Ironwood, and her more obscure grudge against Mark, and her childhood and her father's house. It was, of course, only for a flash, Next moment, she was once more the ordinary social Jane, flushed and confused, to find that she'd been staring rudely, at least she hoped that rudeness would be the main impression produced, at a total stranger. But her world was unmade. She knew that. Anything might happen now. And I think what Lewis wants us to do here is to see the power of beauty and holiness and how when she just encounters the presence of this man and the beauty of the environment and the light 
that streams all around him that it totally, everything else about her just drops to the side. The other woman in the room seems like a wisp. He is so much more solid and real and true with a capital R and a capital T than anything she has ever encountered. And the voice also seemed to be like sunlight and gold, like gold not only as gold is beautiful, but as it is heavy, like sunlight, not only as it falls gently on English walls in autumn, but as it beats down on the jungle or the desert to engender life or destroy it. And now it was addressing her. You must forgive me for not getting up, Mrs. Stoddick, it said. My foot is hurt. For the first few minutes after Grace Arnwood had left them alone, Jane hardly took in what the director was saying. It was not that her attention wandered. On the contrary, her attention was so fixed on him that it defeated itself. Every tone, every look, how could they have supposed she would think him young? Every gesture was printing itself upon her memory. And it was not until she found that he had ceased speaking and was apparently awaiting an answer that she realized she had taken in so little of what he had been saying I, I beg your pardon, she said, wishing that she did not keep on turning red like a schoolgirl. I was saying, he answered, that you have already done us the greatest possible service. We knew that one of the most dangerous attacks ever made upon the human race was coming very soon and in this island. We had an idea that Belberry might be connected with it, but we were not certain. We certainly did not know that Belberry was so important. That is why your information is so valuable. But in another way, it presents us with a difficulty. I mean, a difficulty as far as you are concerned. We had hoped you would be able to join us to become one of our army. Can I not, sir, said Jane? It is difficult, said the director after a pause. You see, your husband is in Belberry. So again, you see this power of the presence of beauty and holiness this recognition of the danger of the nice, the spiritual warfare that this man, this director, seems to know about. He knows about this attack, and he's been looking for where and how it's going to come. So then Jane again. Then that is just the question, said the director with a smile. I'm not allowed to be too prudent. I'm not allowed to use desperate remedies until desperate diseases are really apparent. Otherwise, we become just like our enemies, breaking all the rules whenever we imagine that it might possibly do some vague good to humanity in the remote future. And here he's talking about why he refuses to use coercion to make his will happen. And so it's a huge contrast to the nice. And again, this is right out of the abolition of man, uh, this whole idea about ends and means. So, now that the threat of expulsion from the house was imminent, Jane felt a kind of desperation, heedless of that inner commentator who had more than once during this conversation shown her her own words and wishes in such a novel light, she began speaking rapidly. Don't send me back, she said. I'm all alone at home with terrible dreams. It isn't as if Mark and I saw much of one another at the best of times. I'm so unhappy, he won't care whether I come here or not. He'd only laugh at it all if he knew. Is it fair that my whole life 
should be spoiled just because he's got mixed up with some horrible people? You don't think a woman is to have no life of her own just because she's married? Are you unhappy now, said the director? A dozen affirmatives died on Jane's lips as she looked up in answer to his question. Then suddenly, in kind of a deep calm, like the stillness at the center of a whirlpool, she saw the truth and ceased at last to think how her words might make him think of her and answered no. So again, the power of the presence of beauty and holiness to change us. She is being transformed in this encounter. And for a little time, Jane was hardly conscious of anything but peace and well-being, the comfort of her own body in the chair where she sat, and a sort of clear beauty and the colors and proportions of the room. But soon she began thinking to herself, this is the end. In a moment, he will send for the ironwood woman to take you away. It seemed to her that her fate depended on what she said in the next minute. But is it really necessary, she began? I don't think I look on marriage quite as you do. It seems to me extraordinary that everything should hang on what Mark says about something he doesn't understand. Child, said the director, it is not a question of how you or I look on marriage, but how my masters look on it. Someone said they were very old-fashioned, but that was a joke. They are not old-fashioned but they are very, very old. They would never think of finding out first whether Mark and I believed in their ideas of marriage. Well, no, said the director with a curious smile. No, quite definitely, they would not think of doing that. And so again, we see the presence, being in the presence of the director and in this environment, fill her with peace and of beauty. And the director is talking about this givenness of objective reality, that the gods um, that he serves, they have very definite ideas, and they are from everlasting, if you will, and that those ideas don't change, and they're not really interested in what you think about their laws. Um, they are an objective reality. They are a truth with a capital T. They are not subjective. Jane was silent. Though she could not tell the director the truth, and indeed did not know it herself, yet when she tried to explore her inarticulate grievance against Mark, a novel sense of her own injustice, and even of pity for her husband, arose in her mind, and her heart sank, for now it seemed to her that this conversation, to which she had vaguely looked for some sort of deliverance from all problems, was in fact involving her in new ones. It was not his fault, she said at last. I suppose our marriage was just a mistake. The director said nothing. What would you, what would the people you were talking of say about a case like that? I will tell you if you really want to know, said the director. Please, said Jane reluctantly. They would say, he answered, that you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. And this, again, is this whole idea of how the presence of holiness leads to the conviction of sin. And remember, everything Jane has been about 
has been characterized by independence, by being in charge, by being the captain of her own soul and of her own fate, and rebelling against any idea of submission or obedience or any kind of really even partnership with anyone else and in any way infringes upon her. So that continues. I thought love meant equality, Jane said, and free companionship. Ah, equality, said the director. We must talk of that some other time. Yes, we must all be guarded by equal rights from one another's greed because we are fallen, just as we must all wear clothes for the same reason. But the naked body should be there underneath the clothes, ripening for the day when we shall need them no longer. Equality is not the deepest thing, you know. I always thought that was just what it was. I thought it was in their souls that people were equal. You were mistaken, said the director gravely. That is the last place where they are equal. Equality before the law, equality of incomes, that is very well. Equality guards life. It doesn't make it. It's medicine, not food. You might as well try to warm yourself with a blue book. Do you all know what a blue book is? The little exam blank book that you write your exam answers in. Not something you would warm yourself with. But surely in marriage, worse and worse, said the director, courtship knows nothing of equality, nor does fruition. What has free companionship to do with that? Those who are enjoying something or suffering something together are companions. Those who enjoy or suffer one another are not. And this whole idea of equality as a false god, this whole idea that equality and striving to make that be the most important thing is a disaster. There's a lot that could be said about that, but I'll move on. Um, Mrs. Maggs presently returned with a tray bearing a glass, a small flagon of red wine, and a roll of bread. She set it down on a table at the director's side and left the room. You see, said the director, I live like the king and Curdie. It is a surprisingly pleasant diet. With these words, he broke the bread and poured himself out a glass of wine. Well, that's a little obvious. Um, Lewis is usually a little more subtle than that, but uh, you might pick up that there's some Holy Eucharist imagery going on right there, taking the wine, breaking the bread, um, yeah, being the king, so yes, just possibly. Uh, so here we go. There, he said, a very simple adjustment. Humans want crumbs removed. Mice are anxious to remove them. It ought never to have been a cause of war. But you see that obedience and rule are more like a dance than a drill, especially between man and woman, where the roles are always changing. And this is going to be a theme that's going to get developed about the beauty of obedience, and that there are different roles, and the roles are equal in value, but they, they work as in a dance, and it is, it's a beautiful image. So then, this is sort of a long passage, but I think Lewis just writes it so beautifully, so try to stay awake. Uh, when Jane left the hilltop village of St. Anne's and came down to the station, she found that even down there, the fog had begun to lift. There's a lot of symbolism with this fog, in case you didn't notice that. Great windows had opened in it as the train carried her on, 
It passed repeatedly through pools of afternoon sunlight. During this journey, she was so divided against herself that one might say there were three, if not four, Janes in the compartment. The first was a Jane simply receptive of the director, recalling every word and every look and delighting in them, a Jane taken utterly off her guard, shaken out of the modest little outfit of contemporary ideas which had hitherto made her portion of wisdom and swept away on the flood tide of an experience which she did not understand and could not control. For she was trying to control it. That was the function of the second Jane. The second Jane regarded the first with disgust as the kind of woman, in fact, whom she had always particularly despised. Once, coming out of a cinema, she'd heard a little shop girl say to her friend, Oh, wasn't he lovely? If he'd looked at me the way he looked at her, I'd have followed him to the end of the world. A little tawdry, made-up girl sucking up peppermint. Whether the second Jane was right in equating the first Jane with that girl may be questioned, but she did. And she found her intolerable to have surrendered without terms at the mere voice and look of the stranger, to have abandoned without noticing it that prim little grasp on her own destiny, that perpetual reservation which she thought essential to her status as a grown-up, integrated, intelligent person. The thing was utterly degrading, vulgar, uncivilized. The third Jane was a new and unexpected visitant, this moral Jane was one whose existence she had never suspected. Risen from some unknown region of grace or heredity, it uttered all sorts of things which Jane had often heard before, but which had never till that moment seemed to be connected with real life. If it had simply told her that her feelings about the director were wrong, then she would not have been very surprised and would have discounted it as the voice of tradition. But it did not. It kept on blaming her for not having similar feelings about Mark. It kept on pressing into her mind those new feelings about Mark, feelings of guilt and pity, which she had at first experienced in the director's room. It was Mark who had made the fatal mistake. She must, must be nice to Mark. The director obviously insisted on it. At the very moment when her mind was most filled with another man, there arose, clouded with some undefined emotion, a resolution to give Mark much more than she had ever given him before, and a feeling that in so doing, she would really be giving it to the director. And this produced in her such a confusion of sensations that the whole inner debate became indistinct and flowed over into the larger experience of the fourth Jane, who was Jane herself and dominated all the rest at every moment without effort and even without choice. This fourth and supreme Jane was simply in the state of joy. The other three had no power upon her, for she was in the sphere of Jove, amid light and music and festal pomp, brimmed with life and radiant in health, jocund and clothed in shining garments. Whatever she tried to think of led back to the director himself and in him to joy. She saw from the windows of the train the outlined beams of sunlight pouring over stubble or burnished woods and felt that they were like the notes of a trumpet. 
Her eyes rested on the rabbits and cows as they flitted by, and she embraced them in heart with merry holiday love. She delighted in the occasional speech of the one wizened old man who shared her compartment and saw as never before the beauty of his shrewd and sunny old mind, sweet as a nut and English as a chalk down. She reflected with surprise how long it was since music had played any part in her life and resolved to listen to many chorales by Bach on the gramophone that evening. Or else, perhaps, she would read a great many Shakespeare sonnets. She rejoiced also in her hunger and thirst and decided that she would make herself buttered toast for tea, a great deal of buttered toast. And she rejoiced also in the consciousness of her own beauty for she had the sensation, it may have been false in fact, but it had nothing to do with vanity, that her beauty was growing and expanding like a magic flower with every minute that passed. And so you see here this transforming effect of loving the director. And Lewis is leaning into this idea of the director as a Christ figure, that in loving the director, all other loves are caught up in that, and all of the rest of her petty little concerns, when she comes into his presence, it just blows everything else away. It changes all of her priorities about life. So, she's had this glorious experience on the mountaintop, and now comes the valley. Hours later, bruised, frightened, and tired to death, Jane found herself in a street she did not even know surrounded by nice policemen and a few of their females, the wakes, they caught her. And that was how she found herself being taken into a lighted room and questioned by a uniformed woman with short gray hair, a square face, and an unlighted cheroot. The room was in disorder, as if a private house had been suddenly and roughly converted into a temporary police station. The woman with the cheroot took no particular interest until Jane had given her name. Then Miss Hardcastle looked her in the face for the first time, and Jane felt quite a new sensation. She was already tired and frightened, but this was different. The face of the other woman affected her as the face of some men, fat men with small, greedy eyes and strange, disquieting smiles, had affected her when she was in her teens. It was dreadfully quiet and yet dreadfully interested in her. And Jane saw that some quite new idea was dawning on the woman as she stared at her, some idea that the woman found attractive and then tried to put aside and then returned to dally with, and then finally, with a little sigh of contentment, accepted. Miss Hardcastle lit her cheroot and blew a cloud of smoke toward her. If Jane had known how seldom Miss Hardcastle actually smoked, she would have been even more alarmed. The policemen and policewomen who surrounded her probably did. The whole atmosphere of the room became a little different. So we're skipping the torture scene. Then, just as she was finished, she was overtaken by a car, which drew up shortly after it had passed her. Are you all right? said a man, poking his head out. Were you hurt in the riot? said a woman's voice from within. No, not much. I, I don't know, said Jane stupidly. The man stared at her and then got out. I say, he said, you don't look too good. Are you sure you're quite well? Then he turned and spoke to the woman inside. It seemed so long to Jane since she'd heard kind or even sane voices that she felt like crying. The unknown couple made her sit in the car and gave her brandy and after that sandwiches. 
Finally, they asked if they could give her a lift home. Where was home? And Jane, somewhat to her surprise, heard her own voice very sleepily answering the manor at St. Anne's. Then Jane fell asleep at once again and awoke only to find herself entering a lighted doorway and being received by a woman in pajamas and an overcoat who turned out to be Mrs. Maggs. But she was too tired to remember how or where she got to bed. And so we see the chapter ends with this act of kindness and this whole idea of true home. So there are a bunch of themes in here. Uh, this whole idea of the company being one body, membership in the company, the power of beauty and holiness, the power of the presence of God, of the presence of Christ, of entering in, and how that is transformative. Um, we also see the danger of the nice. We see there's spiritual warfare going on. We see that for the community at St. Anne's, the ends do not justify the means, opposite from the nice. We see the power of beauty and holiness in the presence of Christ to change us, to transform us, to take our deepest worries and fears and just completely annihilate them and redirect us. We see the givenness of objective reality versus the poison of subjectivism. We see how the presence of holiness leads to conviction of sin and an understanding of the value of obedience. We see equality as a false god, as the way of the world, not the way of this director. We see the symbolism of the Eucharist, again, the beauty of obedience, the transforming effect of loving the director. When your whole heart is filled with love for the director, for Christ, it transforms the way you see everything, the way you see other people, the way you see the environment, everything. We see that despite the presence of this holiness and beauty, that evil is a real thing that still exists. And then we see the value of kindness and the idea of true home. So some practices of hope and wisdom. Let's say this Philippians verse together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there are a lot of practices we could draw from tonight, but I think the most important one is this first one of making regular worship and the beauty of holiness your highest priority. Because what Lewis is showing us is the same thing the scriptures teach, that when we come into the presence of God, we are transformed. And we, in this culture, where we're surrounded by so much that is not beautiful and not holy, we desperately need to be washed um, in the beauty of holiness and worship. And I love uh, this section uh, from Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And then from Psalm 27, One thing I have asked from the Lord, 
that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And I think this kind of worship is obviously talking about corporate worship, but it can also be individual worship where you are focused in on God and the presence of God, but particularly corporate worship where you are in the church where there's an altar, where there's the fullness of the sacraments and ministry and all of that. Um, That is something that we need as a tonic as often as we can get it. And related to this, prepare your heart before and after worship and allow the Holy Spirit to work transformation in you. This is one of the areas in our modern age that we've forgotten. People used to prepare to go to worship. And even at the time of going to worship, people used to come early and kneel in silence before the worship service to ask God to prepare their hearts. And most of us, if you're like me, you live with so little margin that you're flying in at the last minute and then you gotta fly out right at the end to go do something else. That is no way to deal with the sacred and the holy. If you want to have the power of that, you need to prepare. Uh, So again from Hebrews, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this great verse from Isaiah, which I can't help but think that Lewis had this in mind. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his rib filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and then this whole part at the end. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that is so much what you see of Jane's reaction. Thirdly, reflect during the week on truth, beauty, and goodness that you encountered in worship. The scriptures are full of things telling us to remember, and that means you have to be proactive about that. Fourthly, proactively choose to surround yourself with and to focus on beauty, just like that Philippians verse we just read. And then fifth, practice radical kindness. One of the distinctives of the Christian faith is that we are told to love and pray for and be kind even to our enemies. We live in a culture that's not very kind right now, and one of the ways that Christians can really stand out is kindness. So I want to close just by reading you another poem. Um, You probably notice that we're seeing a lot of poetry in here, and part of the reason for that is poetry makes you slow down. You can't read poetry in a hurry, even though I do, because we're always right about to end class. Uh, But I commend these poets that we're touching on. Um, This is a poem from Henry Vaughan, who is a just marvelously gifted Christian 17th century poet whose work will bless you if you read it. And this is about the morning watch, getting up to get ready to worship. Oh, joys, infinite sweetness, with what flowers and shoots of glory My soul breaks and buds all the long hours of night and rest through the still shrouds of sleep and clouds. This dew fell on my breast, oh, how it bloods and spirits all my earth. Hark, in what rings and hemming circulations the quick world awakes and sings. The rising winds and falling springs, birds, beasts, all things adore him in their kinds. Thus, 
All is hurled in sacred hymns and order, the great chime and symphony of nature. Prayer is the world in tune, a spirit voice and vocal joys whose echo is heaven's bliss. Oh, let me climb when I lie down. The pious soul by night is like a clouded star whose beams, though said to shed their light under some cloud, yet are above and shine and move beyond that misty shroud. So in my bed, that curtained grave, though sleep like ashes hide my lamp and life, both shall in thee abide. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that your presence and your beauty and your holiness overwhelm us with joy and they take every care of this world and reduce those cares to nothing. Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek after your presence as the deer pants for water. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to neglect worship, but to come to you that we might have our sight reordered and our priorities redrawn. Lord, we thank you for this book and pray that the wisdom that is in it would inform our lives as we live in these days that are so dark. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming. If you didn't get a handout, please do. Um, it's a good one.